0: Hello and welcome to the How-To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christadoulou. Ian McGilchrist is a psychiatrist, philosopher and neuroscientist who you might have heard on this podcast before. We've had him in conversation with Philip Pullman and then again with John Cleese. We've invited him back so many times because, as far as I'm concerned, he's one of the most profound and serious thinkers of our age. His theory of how the hemispheres of our brain work together is one that has profound implications for the meaning and value of human life. His first book on this subject was The Master and His Emissary, and we brought him together with David Malone last week to talk about the recent sequel, The Matter with Things. Hope you enjoy their conversation as much as I did.
1: I'm guessing that most people here, probably everyone here, has read and fully digested and understood The Master and His emissary, but just in case someone has <laughs> snuck in, um, could you bear to just outline the left and right hemisphere theory, because it is the sort of the foundation upon which everything else rests.
2: Yes, I, I, I know, and some of you will have heard about it already, but there's probably a few people who haven't. If you of coming late to the idea of hemisphere differences, you may have heard that it's all complete nonsense. And that was very much what was going on in the intellectual milieu about the time I started being interested in hemisphere differences. I thought there was something here that couldn't be neglected. Why is the brain divided at all, and since its power comes from making connections? Why are all the brains that we know and even the neural networks going back 700 million years, why are they all asymmetrical? And why is the joining between these two hemispheres, there's a band of connecting neurons called the corpus callosum, across which only 2% of neurons actually communicate. Why is so much of its function inhibitory? in effect telling the other hemisphere to keep out of it. So the idea that there was no difference seemed to me wrong. And to cut a very long story short, it's quite true that the nonsense that was put about in the 70s and 80s was wrong. Um, People were thinking the brain was a machine, so they asked the question, what does it do? And they came up with the answer, the left hemisphere does reason and language, and the right hemisphere does pictures and emotions well, it didn't take very long to find out that that's not right because both hemispheres were involved in everything. And people would say, well, so the subject is a dead subject. But that was only because the model they were using to think about the brain was that of a machine. And if you think about it instead as part of a person, you ask a more important question is, how do these two neuronal masses, how do they do what it is they do and I don't mean in terms of the mechanics I mean how, in what way in what manner and this boils down to something undeniable I believe I've put forward a a belief which has not been challenged and I don't know anyone's theory that answers it better that creatures all have to solve the problem of getting food and staying alive and if you pay the kind of attention you need to get something which is targeted to something you already know, it's very local, it's isolated, it's very sharply resolved, that is a fine attention for using something, picking up and manipulating it, or eating it. But it's not a good thing if that's the only attention you pay because at the same time you need to look out for predators, you need to look out for conspecifics, your mate, your kids, your kin, and that requires a quite different kind of attention, which is broad, open, sustained, vigilant, not piecemeal and fragmentary forgetting. And so if you want a sort of soundbite, the left hemisphere has evolved to enable us to get, whereas the right hemisphere has evolved to enable us to understand the whole picture. This is important because these two kinds of attention bring into being for, the, for us two different kinds of experiential worlds. What are they like? In one, there seem to be little bits that are known, familiar, targeted by us because they're useful, um, static because we fix them with our staff so that we can get them quickly, explicit, that's what they are, you, what you see is what you get, they're inanimate, they are unconnected with everything else. Whereas in the right hemisphere, there's a quite different picture, which is that nothing is fully known, nothing is ever certain, it's always a matter of degree of belief, and what you see is largely what is implicit. Most of what we understand is not the stuff that's explicit in, in terms that a computer could understand it if you just fed in some words and a grammar. Instead, it's all the things that really matter to us, the things that are not said, how they're said, the irony, the sarcasm, the the metaphor, the poetry, all the things that help us understand what's going on, including facial expressions and body language. So that, that kind of a world is a rich, alive world, but it's not so useful, because what you really need is a quick and dirty map where I can get stuff. So you end up with two kinds of world, one the living world that comes into being for us when we pay this kind of sustained attention to it without preconceptions and the other, the world that we think we know because it's on a map and it's incredibly simple but it's just a representation of reality, it's not reality itself and the trouble comes when you start to believe you're living in the map not in the real world, that your theory or diagram is more important than experience and that's the world we live in now (laughs) Marvellous. <laughs> <laughs> I, I should just add, going with this, the left hemisphere is massively overconfident. Um, there's something in psychology called the Dunning-Kruger effect, and what this basically means is the less you know, the more you think you know, and the more you know, the more you realise how little you do know. The left hemisphere is the kind of pub boar that knows it all. <laughs> and it jumps to conclusions and it doesn't want to have its certainty shaken. It has to be clear, black and white, it's this or it's that. What do you mean there are shades of meaning, nuances, depends on context. That's the stuff the right hemisphere understands. So it's overconfident and it's terribly optimistic. It doesn't think there's anything wrong with anything it does. So extreme is this, that if a patient has a stroke in the right hemisphere and has a paralysis on the left side, the patient may completely deny that an obviously paralyzed limb is paralyzed. And if you draw attention to it and say, well, look, this is your limb, move it, they'll say, oh, it's not my limb, this is yours, doctor, or it belongs to my mother, or perhaps to that patient over there. So it's not a good guide to reality. You know the bad story was that the left hemisphere was maybe boring, a bit like an accountant, but it was reliable. Forget it. The left hemisphere is deluded. It really is. And I'm not the only neurologist who says this. The left hemisphere, left to itself, is delusional. And reality orientation comes from the right hemisphere. So that's the, that's the sort of layout of the mm. land. Mm.
1: Now, in, in the, the, the math with things, in some ways, you leap over the what's not right with the left hemisphere's view of the world. I mean, you do talk about it as it goes along, but much more of the the time is spent saying, what happens if we look at the world and ourselves more the way that we would if we were paying any attention to the right hemisphere? Yeah. And one of the things which you, the advices you talk about through the book is this the spotlight of attention, which is very much what the left hemisphere does. Yes. As you were saying, it, it, yes. it shines its attention on the, the stuff that it wants to manipulate. Exactly. What gets left out?
2: Um, just about everything. And, uh, <laughs> it, it's rather like, you know, the man who'd lost his keys and was searching under the lights, you know, because that's where he could see them. Mm. But they're somewhere else. And, you know, we have an idea that the unconscious mind is something like a tank, you know, a fish tank that's underneath the bit that we actually see. But it's not like that at all. The unconscious mind has been estimated with absurd and amusing specificity. It's 99.44% <laughs> of, of all the activity of our um, nervous system. But the point is still valid, that most of what's going on in our minds is not in the focus of consciousness, But that doesn't mean it's not important. It's like on a stage. The spotlight goes to one part, but the whole of the rest of the stage hasn't just disappeared. All the other characters who are not in the spotlight have not left the plot. It's all still going on. And when we are not conscious of things, we are still doing some very difficult cognitive work and emotional work. We're coming to terms with difficult problems, we're solving cognitive conundrums, we're able to... Weigh up the rights and wrongs of a certain course of action, fall in love, appreciate the landscape, do all kinds of things in a non-spotlighted way. And so to equate attention with that beam where everything seems to be is a fundamental error of colossal proportions. There is another kind of attention we're paying all the time, which is giving us 95% anyway, of all that we understand about the world.
1: Mm. It's just that that knowledge we're often not aware of, so it's not available to the little Ronald Reagan part of us that struts about and talks about everything.
2: Well, talking is is important there, because the problem is that only certain things can be put into language, Mm. and once they're put into language, you can only focus on them one at a time, unless it's poetry poetry is a wholly other business, it's a kind of way of using language to undermine the restrictions of language. But for most purposes you can only say one thing at a time in language and you can only deal with things that are easily verbalized. But all the really important stuff isn't verbalized. All the things that really matter to us and make life worth living we may be kidded into thinking they don't exist because they're not easy to express, but they're there, and mm-hmm. if we don't attend to them, we're only half alive.
1: Yes, and because, just because we can't articulate them doesn't mean that they're somehow muddled or ill-thought-out. Absolutely it's, not. It's the left hemisphere with its verbal ability does tend to put it that way, but, but often in, well, there's quite large sections of the book where you... you talk about things like intuition and imagination. In, in the section where you talk about paths t- to truth. And it is true that there's the other phrase where you say something has come to me. Mm. Um, so that, lar- that large, what was it, 99.44% did you say? <laughs> is it fair to say that there's a, most of our, of our thinking, most of our knowledge is in there and just because we can't articulate it doesn't mean that it's muddled.
2: All the most important things can't be articulated simply and in ancient Greece they thought there were two kinds of truth Mussos and logos. Mussos gives us the word myth and there was no implication that myth wasn't true the myth was the most important kind of truth and the sort of truth that it expressed couldn't be expressed in the language of the courtroom where logos was in charge. And so they thought of Logos as a very second-rate kind of truth-finding that would be okay for lawyers. But the really important stuff had to be encapsulated in myths, in narratives, in music, in poetry, in drama, and all those things that are avoiding just writing it down in the same way that you'd um, write a a manual for operating a dishwasher. Hmm
1: did that make writing your book difficult? Because... Yes, thi- this, this is, it's very <laughs> bloody difficult, <laughs> yes. Well, Because you spend such a lot of time in the book saying, you know, if you try to put things into words, uh, you lose all of the meaning. And I'm reading this on page 1,220, thinking, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, in some way, you were trying to use the enemy's tools to undermine... <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you know, you, you, yeah. Because you say a lot of truth has to be experienced and in my mind I thought well it's the difference between hearing about a mystery and being initiated into it and I felt that the book wasn't just trying to explain mysteries to me but was trying to initiate me into them but using words
2: which is maybe why it took you 1600 pages
1: (laughs) maybe that's why it took you 1600 pages.
2: (laughs) Well I think there's some truth in that I mean i I say at the outset of the book that, okay, you could think of it as an argument, a single argument, and in one way it is, but an argument is no good for somebody who doesn't really get what it is that you're talking about because they're starting from somewhere from which they can't see that kind of truth. Mm. So I liken it to going on a walk with somebody through a landscape and being able to see different views from round depending on where you are on the hills or mountains, looking into the valleys and seeing the overall picture. So that's what I've tried to do in that book, but it contains an awful lot, as people keep pointing out to me, of science and reason. I have nothing against science and reason. When I talk about the four main paths, I talk about science, reason, intuition, and imagination. And I think everybody knows that science and reason help us in many ways, but they can also not deal with certain aspects that are very important of our reality. Hmm. And for these, we sometimes need intuition and imagination. In fact, even for science, and even for doing reason properly, not just rationalising algorithms as a computer would, but being that wise person who can reason on a basis of knowledge and experience, what we used to expect from a judge, a mature and wise judge, To do all those you need intuition and imagination as well. So these four complement one another and work together. We need to use all of them. And people sometimes say to me, you know, your book's terribly left hemisphere, you know. <laughs> and I say, well, I hope my left hemisphere is still working. It was. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, 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 I don't think I'd have written it better if I'd have a left hemispherectomy. And, no. and actually, the left hemisphere is my second favorite hemisphere anyway. <laughs> um, so, I mean, come on, we need it. So, um, y- what you're really pointing to is something that actually. Can I just expand for a minute? Of course, yeah. yeah. Um, How did this calamity happen that I was going to write these two big books on something that everybody warned me not to do? You know, don't do this. You've got a promising career ahead of you. (laughs) Nobody will take you seriously if you write about hemisphere lifts. Well, one day I heard a talk at the Institute of Psychiatry by a colleague, John Cutting, who had been doing something that no other neurologist or psychiatrist had been doing which was to sit at the bedside of people for 20 years who'd had strokes, tumours or injuries to the right hemisphere. And when the left hemisphere is damaged, you see all these obvious things. Difficulty speaking, difficulty writing, difficulty using the right hand to pick things up. But actually more important and therefore more difficult to remedy is the business of the right hemisphere. If the right hemisphere is damaged, it's harder to rehabilitate somebody then, even the, the, the deficits that come with left hemisphere damage, you think that would be the most difficult, but actually does not because with the right hemisphere damage, you don't really understand the world. you don't understand what's going on, what people mean or what anything adds up to. You. whereas with damage to the left hemisphere, okay, you can't speak about it, but you at least under, you're still in the same world. So anyway, I went to see this, this lecture almost um, as a a whim, really, because I'd never heard very much about the right hemisphere. When I was in medical school, the right hemisphere, nobody really knew what it did. It was probably there for propping up the left hemisphere and stopping it falling over. Mm. But actually, it turns out that it does most of the really important stuff. And John said there are three things, I mean, he said many other things, but three things that really struck me. One is the right hemisphere alone understands implicit meaning. The left hemisphere takes it literally and therefore doesn't understand poetry, irony, humour. Sounds like the world we live in, then there's a lot more of that. Um, and the second thing he said was that the right hemisphere is far more in touch with our embodied being and our emotions. The left hemisphere tends to be more abstracted and decontextualized. And the third thing was the right hemisphere understands the unique case whereas the left hemisphere has already gone, I know it's one of those, and put it in a box marked whatever. This is a category of things. And that struck me very strongly, because when I'd been a student of literature, I thought one of the problems with the way we approached it was we took something that was absolutely unique, that was profoundly implicit, that when you paraphrased it, it just collapsed like explaining a joke, And that thirdly, it was very much not just a cognitive affair. It was the sort of thing that you responded to with all your embodied being, your your blood pressure, your pulse, your breathing, the tension in the skeletal muscles, all change while you're reading poetry or listening to a drama. So what he'd said in a very short space of time was that three things that are very important, and you spent your 20s writing a book called Against Criticism, that's what I did, um, I published by Faber in 1982 and I think unceremoniously remained it after selling about 400 copies. But the problem with it was, by the way, if you find a copy now, pick it up because it's worth about 2,000 pounds. But um, <laughs> the, what I was trying to explain was why, why would being implicit more important than being explicit? Why was understanding the unique case more important than the category? Why was this business of embodiment so important for the understanding of anything human? And that was my eye-opener. And I realised that the left hemisphere is the one that does the speaking. So if I'm talking to you, I've got to take all this information from the right hemisphere and find words in the left hemisphere that can express it. And that was a big problem for me. But you yes. didn't run out. Hmm? You didn't run out of words. I didn't run out of you words. Had of- <laughs> no, I didn't. No, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and what I can
1: tell you, having read the whole of the matter with things, is that you could summarise the argument in far less space, but you shouldn't because there is a whole experiential side, a sort of an initiation that you, that unfolds. That is the, the greater point of his writing. If, if you got the sort of the, in America they used to be called Cliff Notes where they would boil you know, Hamlet down to eight lines. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not worth doing that for Ian's book because He's trying to say that that's not the way you understand the world. And as you go through the book, there is a subtle unfolding of a different worldview, which you managed to do. Thank you. Um, So it's worth it. (laughs) Um, When you do begin to, as you do in the book, say, look, if we stop trying to attend to the world just with the spotlight, but try to attend with that broader attention of the right hemisphere, then as you say, the way you attend to the world changes, not just what you see, not just what you know, but it changes the world that you're looking at and you yourself. Yes. Because one of the things that's central to the book is the left hemisphere's world is very much me and it, I'm active and it's just a a backdrop. Whereas... The point that you make is the world as you see it through the the right hemisphere is a participatory world. Yes. How how does that that insight begin to change how you genuinely feel the world is?
2: Sorry, it's a a large question. It's a large. (laughs) It's a large question, but it's a very important one, and I think the answer is it changes it profoundly because there are two positions that are quite commonly articulated today, and I resist each of them. One is the idea that there is just stuff out there, and it's our job passively to register it. And the other is that we make it all up by what we do inside, and there is no truth. It's just what we happen to find pleasing, so we might as well stop discussing whether there's any truth in anything, because it's just an invention. Now, each of these is dead. Each of these is a dead end. Each of these has, if you like, the the tension between them, the electricity has been switched off. One of them is the boring idea of the old-fashioned Newtonian scientific realist, in other words, the scientific materialist, and that world, and that world of the loss of meaning and the fragmentation of the world is something i'm struggling to to say is not adequate and is in fact ultimately damaging the other is this postmodern idea that somehow we're the authors of our own truth so what there is i believe is an encounter and an encounter is always two ways and involves two parties and each will come away from the encounter changed So whatever it is that we think we find in the world around us is something that is partly given and partly contributed by ourselves. And it's not just partly in some way like, well, this portion is made already and this portion is added by me. It's seamlessly through and through a new element in the world. We are co-creating the world all the time because of the way we attend to it and how we attend to it therefore matters because it changes two things it changes the world, literally and it changes the person who's attending so for example, all of you know that if you're the object of a detached threatening, cynical glare you feel yourself different from how you feel if you're the object of the gaze of someone you love and What you look at in the world doesn't have to be living to be changed. How we look at any object changes. I sometimes talk about, sorry about this, the mountain behind my house. The the Norse name for where I live is Talusger, which means the sloping rock. There's a mountain with an obviously sloping outline from the sea. What does that tell us? It tells us that the Norsemen, when they came down there a thousand years ago, knew it as a landmark that would save them from death. But there's also other ways of seeing it. The the picts who lived there saw it as the home of the gods, people who came there in the 18th century drew it as a beautiful form. In the 19th century they found it was a marvellous example of columnar basalt, and a, a, a speculator would therefore see it as dollars, And to a physicist, it's just 99.99% empty space. And the other 0.1%. Well, we don't really know what it is. Now, which (laughs) of those is the real mountain? The answer is no one of those is the real mountain. They're all perfectly real. But they become whatever it is you attend to it as. And its future depends on how you attend to it. And your future attends on it. So if you're used to paying a certain kind of attention, you begin to find you're living a mechanical world in a desert where no spiritual or emotional meaning or moral meaning exists so that's why I say attention is a moral act
1: yes it is and the, the, the attention as you say it changes your not just your impression of the world but, but who you are yeah. and, it isn't, and that sort of brings you to the, the I hate the word political but the sort of contemporary imperative of the book saying look we've fought ourselves to a place where we're unhappy yeah. And unfulfilled, and doing things to ourselves and the planet which are really not helpful, but somehow we feel stuck there. If we begin to pay more attention to this other way, how then do we begin to remedy those rather pathological ways in which we see ourselves? I mean, are we just, is the world meaningless, and are we just a thing amongst things? Which is the sort of what you'll be told if you go to Oxford or Cambridge. I know because they they told me.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, there's always a difficulty in philosophy and science that they move forward, they change, and those who have a big investment in the way things are seen now will certainly not want to hear any other point of view because their careers depended on it, their prospects of promotion, or getting a gong, depend on them sticking to that and juniors don't want to step out of line because they won't get promoted by the bigwigs. Mm. So there's always this, but we have to be brave enough to point out something and what one hopes is that people will see it and therefore begin to change the evidence to me is that people are seeing it and are beginning to change. So I think there's far less willingness to embrace the idea of the cosmos as a chaotic mess of bits of completely meaningless matter colliding with one another. I mean, first of all, this is utterly unsupported by physics. None of the wisdom traditions of the world or even any up-to-date modern philosophy would really support this idea. So why do we cling to it? Because somehow it's what's been put out into the culture. You know, children are probably taught that everything is really just a machine, a mechanism, but it is not, and organisms are not like machines. In the book, I have a chapter on that and point out at least eight ways in which an organism is not the same as a machine. Mm. And really what we ought to see is that machines are a very, very, very special case of something that exists everywhere in the cosmos, which is organismic complexity. Yes. Not the other way around, that actually everything's a machine, and we just happen to be rather odd machines that have developed certain add-on features.
1: Yes, well, you, 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 you talk about purpose, and, and you make the, the claim which is now making its way into contemporary discussions of biology, which is that life is purposeful. It's, mm. it's not purposeless. And you make the nice distinction, you, you say the purpose of, and you choose a melody, you say the purpose of a melody is itself, whereas the purpose of a photocopier is external to itself. It's just making the photocopy. So when you talk about the world, you say, look, this is a purposeful world. And I'd, I'd like you to talk a little bit more about how important this, being able to see the world as containing purpose. That Purpose is not something that we've invented.
2: Absolutely not. No, um, it's almost impossible to look carefully at biology and not see the creatures that we have happily labelled blind mechanisms that can't possibly have a purpose, have no purpose. I mean it's just contrary to everything you can see and and scientists used to say things like a turtle comes ashore not to lay its eggs but the turtle comes ashore and then lays eggs. But this kind of logic chopping and playing with words is a way of trying to hide from the very obvious fact that all organisms are driven towards certain goals Mm -hmm. and they're not actually driven in the sense of propelled from behind they're attracted from in front there are things that draw us forward and these are values in our world and what I've tried to do in the last part of the matter with things is to show how fundamental values and purpose are that they're not things that we made up to cheer ourselves up and painted on the walls of our cell like a sort of pretty fresco. These are things that are there. We didn't create them. Mm -hmm. And in my view, the reason for us having the capacity that we have as living beings that can respond, we came into being because we have that capacity to respond and fulfill certain values. And that's what we're here for. And if you, if you don't, then that's fine. That's up to you. Your life will be unfulfilling and you won't have helped bring forward the dance of the cosmos, which is towards the fulfillment of certain values. But it is important that they're recognized as there. Mm-hmm. And purposes of the same kind, that... As you were saying, there are two ways of thinking of purpose. One is exterior purpose, an ulterior purpose, the purpose for which we created a machine, the photocopier to copy the paper. But just because we can't find that kind of purpose doesn't mean that everything is purposeless. All the things that we really value are purposeful. Otherwise, we wouldn't do them. But their purpose lies in them because they are rich and full of the expression of these values,
1: and it's the left hemisphere that can't do that. The left hemisphere is looking for a purpose, like the purpose that it made its photocopies. Well, the left hemisphere <laughs> is, in,
2: yeah, the left hemisphere is, you know, evolutionarily developed to help us manipulate the world. That make make
1: photocopies for us. Sorry. <laughs> and make photocopies. And us. <laughs> make
2: photocopies. Yes. <laughs> in some ways, you can think of the left hemisphere as the copier because it makes representations of things that are really alive and present. Um, and we are more and more living in a world of representation, in which, as it were, the electricity has gone. As I say, mm. the reason I talk about electricity is it comes out of relationships. I mean, where is the electricity in a circuit? Is it in the left? Sorry, the negative pole? No. Is it in the positive pole? No. Is it just in the space between them? No. It's in the whole thing. But when they're all present together, then there is electricity. And lots of things are like this—that we need to hold attention between opposites. Otherwise, we don't—we um, don't feel this coming to life. Yes.
1: Well, you, you, it's one of the things you do in the book is you, you, you take thoughts which, traditionally, we tend to say, "Well, that doesn't lead anywhere. It's unimportant," and and rehabilitate them, like negation. You know, that Neg- something is. Negative. Negation is
2: terribly important.
1: Yes, well, you, you make the point that. Mm-hmm. What is it? That, I, I won't get the phrase exactly right, but that it's, it's the resistance in the flow of life which then does create something new. You use the image of a stick in a flow of water. And yes. Because the stick is there getting in the yes. way, suddenly you create a train of vortices which yes. would never have been in the water otherwise. Yes, yes. So there are all of these. Habits of mind which we have and which the left hemisphere is so sure is right but which you take each one of them and um, like with opposites and, yes. and things which seem to contradict each other and you use the image of the magnet
2: yes yes the poles of a bar magnet you can't have one without the other um, and you can't cut one off and just be left with the other one you just have a shorter magnet <laughs> and the thing is that there's no demarcation there is no ultimate severance, but they're both necessary and present and they can be easily distinguished. It's very easy to distinguish the North Pole from the South Pole, but they are never severed. And one of the problems in the way we talk, I think, is that we think that if we make a distinction, we've made a severance. But actually, no, it's very important that there are distinctions We can't even think or act or do anything without making important distinctions. But a distinction doesn't necessarily, and almost never does, imply a complete severance. And opposites need to be not collapsed into one pole or the other, but they need to be maintained together. As I often say, a good apple pie is not made by getting bland apples, but getting tart apples and putting lots of honey with them. We need these both. And you know, in in Heraclitus' image, it's this taut string that allows the arrow to come forth from the bow, or the taut string that allows the note to come forth from the lyre. If we let it go, slack by not pulling in two directions, there would be no energy there. We've misunderstood that and we've misunderstood the the way in which opposites occur. So we think that because something has been good and necessary, that more and more and more of it is going to be better and better and better. But actually you find yourself achieving the very opposite. So if you keep on chipping away at certain things, you don't end with total freedom, you end with anarchy and then there will be tyranny. Mm. So it's very famous that revolutions end in tyranny because there are certain constraints that are compatible with freedom. You can't have freedom without learning self-discipline. Mm. That's something we've forgotten.
1: Yes. And the idea, just to go back to something you mentioned earlier, the idea of relationships. Um, I mean, I, I, I talked to the physicist Carlo Rovelli of, of, um, last year, and he was making this, the same point which is that things don't have um, attributes until they're in a relation with something else. And he, he was advancing this as, a, as a, his interpretation of quantum mechanics. And I was struck by how important the idea of relations is yeah. in your work.
2: It is very important, yeah. I mean, in fact, in this book I argue that relations and relationships come first. And the things that are related only emerge out of the relationships. In other words, the exact inverse of what we're taught. So it may seem a bit counterintuitive, but if you think of a net, and there's a wonderful image called Indra's net in the Vedanta, of this god that covers the cosmos with a net. And at every intersection of the fibers of the net, there is hung a jewel. And in that jewel is imaged every other jewel in the net, So, something like a hologramic view of the universe. But the important idea is that the things that stand out are these intersection points. And those are where we focus our attention and go, oh, there's a thing, I can see it. Mm. But actually, the web is simply made out of connecting filaments. And it's those connections that, that come first. And so, it is never okay to take something out of the context because it is the context that makes it what it is. Yeah. And context can completely reverse the meaning of something. Sorry, this is a joke I, I like to tell, but it's very straightforward. It's quite quick. In America, there are four, four sizes of cereal packets. There is jumbo, which means very large. There is economy, which means large. And then there's family, which means medium. And finally, there's large, which means small. So if you, if you don't get the context right, you lose the meaning of things, and everything exists in that context.
1: And yet that narrow focus of attention the scientific method itself is predicated on cutting away the context and saying this is all exactly. these are all the things that we that we can't fit because they just make things too complicated yes. so we're going to cut all of that away so we can get clarity about this one thing and we do get clarity Yes. It's just now clarity without any context, so it may be clarity. Well, there's
2: always got to be some sort of trade off because yeah. if you were really to understand anything, you'd have to take into context everything else in the universe. Yeah. So we tend to restrict ourselves to a certain range of context, which is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Things that are either prepotent for this particular element or are particularly in the vicinity of it. But in order to understand things, we have to go further than that. And the process of analysis is to take everything apart and then suppose that you can find out what it was from the bits. But the only important thing, which is the way in which the bits are related, has just been discarded. It's very obvious in the case of music. You know, a note, what is a note? I I can take a piece of music and analyse it and say that the 394 B-flats in this sonata by Schubert and there are 267 C-sharps or whatever it is. But this is not going to give you any information because it's all... In the sequence of these things and the way they relate to one another, the harmony, the melody, and the rhythm. Hmm. And life is more like music than it is like a mechanism. Yes. In fact, the cosmos has anciently and wisely been seen as based on music. And this is not a silly or, or simple-minded idea. It's too sophisticated for most people nowadays.
1: Yes. And I mean, the, what you're saying about the scientific method. It is very useful. It does allow us to build better bridges and faster aeroplanes. Absolutely. But your point is it's not to decry that and say we shouldn't do it, but that we shouldn't mistake the results we get from that method as being the whole truth.
2: Well, if we look after truth, then we really ought to be preferring whatever it is the right hemisphere tells us, that there are no certainties, that negation is creative, that it's all in relationships, that it's the implicit matters, and all this kind of thing, which we've just completely jettisoned. So everything is taken dead, literally. uh, We're turning ourselves into computers. You know, people are terribly Mm. worried about AI because they think it'll somehow become... Human, well, of course, it bloody won't. I mean, don't be so stupid. I mean, the thing is that what is happening is that we, this is the danger, we are becoming more like machines all the time. And we're being taught to answer things in a mechanical way. And every day we have to interface with some machine that doesn't understand anything to do with what a human life is like. And even if we get to talk to a person, they have such strict guidelines that they have to go through the sort of thing a machine would go through. Mm. This is the real danger.
1: Yes. And then we do have these other routes to knowledge and mm. truth. You know, as you said, you, you do, in the book, you, you set side by side science, reason, mm. and, and, and the average professor at this point is going, oh, this is marvellous, and then you go completely off the rails and add on to it um, intuition and imagination.
2: Yes. But you, <laughs> Yes, he says, yes. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, what you need to know is that I take each one of these four and say what are their strengths and what are their weaknesses. And I use, you know, research on this. which You know, there's a lot of scientific information about them. And the trouble here is that, again, pop psychology pops in here. And there are lots of psychologists who make an extremely good living out of going around to businesses and telling people they shouldn't trust their intuitions. Because intuitions can sometimes be wrong. That's true. But following pure reason can sometimes be wrong. It was a point made by G.K. Chesterton that the madman has not lost his reason, he's lost everything but his reason. And this is actually (laughs) true in in a deep way about schizophrenia. People come to very extraordinary conclusions, but entirely rationally. They can hear somebody speaking, there's nobody in the room, quite clearly, so it must be coming from that socket down there, which is the only way in which things can come in, and somebody is trying to influence me by sending these voices. It's entirely rational, but it's bonkers. And the thing is that we are now living in a world in which we are asked to believe these simplistic, rationalistic things because they make sense. But our intuitions are far, far subtler than that. They're based on hard-won experience. They're based on suffering. And it's true that there are illusions. They can set up a situation in which you're tempted to make a judgment that can be shown to be logically wrong. Fair enough. But these are just like optical illusions. I can show you an optical illusion that you simply can't believe until I can demonstrate the thing is, I'm afraid, the way that I'm telling you it is, not the way it looks. But I don't know anyone who, after seeing one of these, said, well, that does it from now on. I'm going to lead my life with my eyes closed. And, and that's what we're doing with intuition. Hmm. Because, and, and, you know, a lot of leading figures, I'm thinking of one who's a, 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 an academic jurist, head of one of the Max Planck Institutes in Germany, who has said the most important thing for any leader is to encourage his people to use their intuition this is how great science is made. Mm. Science, there is a scientific method, the left hemisphere loves that, but almost no great discoveries were ever made by the scientific method. <laughs> they were often made walking home at night and looking at the stars, going shopping, forgetting about it, and famously, in the case of Poincaré, putting your shopping on the bus and suddenly understanding Fuchsian equations. Yeah. So, you know, th- th- this is how it's done. You have to do some hard work, I grant you, of course. But once you've done that, you need to let the more intelligent and imaginative part of your mind work. And it does the really sophisticated stuff. You know, I want to to say this because people have a misunderstanding. Think, yeah, I get it. The right hemisphere is surely going to be more socially and emotionally intelligent than the left. And it is, in spades. Which is kind of important because that's about how human beings live together. But the other thing is, the right hemisphere is much more intelligent cognitively. So we have evidence that when people have had strokes that has affected their IQ, the vast majority, almost every case, this is a stroke in the right hemisphere, not a stroke in the left. So It's just worth registering that one because it's contrary to the way in which we've been taught. Mm. And,
1: And both Einstein and Kurt Gödel believed in inspiration. And most of the great scientists mm. believed in inspiration. They're very clear. Yes. As you said, the scientific method doesn't usually come up with great ideas, but it's good at checking other people's great ideas. Exactly. Afterwards, yes. after yes. you've That's had it. Right. Yeah. Do we all have inspiration? Is something that we're all just given inspiration, intuition? Are these part of the human endowment? Is it something that, we, that everyone has? Or do you have to be in McGilchrist to have <laughs> great
2: intuitions and... Not at all, not at all. So it is part of, everyone here has it. If we pay attention to our experience, then we will have better intuitions. I always say that people who reason well have better intuitions, and people who've developed good intuitions reason better than those who haven't. So they are partners. They don't have to be one against the other. This is the the false way in which we think. We need both of something we have decided is contrary.
1: Hmm. Is this where, as you say, the, the whole idea of intuition and imagination, they're anathema to the bureaucratic mindset. And is that where we're trapped, that we've set up a society which t- warns us away from the
2: very things that we, we really... Well,
1: uh, things of ourselves that we, that we need.
2: We're warned away from them by a certain manner of education, which is about inserting information and hoping that it somehow makes somebody clever or wise. <laughs> Whereas actually what one needs is to be taught how to think critically yes. and to to see different points of view about a question and to take them both into account or all into account, not just one. If we could do that, we would solve many of the wars, literally the wars, but also the the wars on the internet. I mean, so much of it is so unnecessary and so unintelligent and it's destructive so we, we need to regain a vision of you know what are we what are we doing here what is a human being what are we doing on this planet what is the natural world what is the cosmos and it's really those questions that i dare to ask in that book and they don't alas as you've pointed out they don't have a quick answer but they can be explained by taking things patiently through stages You know, one of the questions is, why are we alive? You know, this is a really interesting one. Survival? Is evolution really about survival? Well, there are actinobacteria in the depths of the oceans that have been around for half a million years. Simple organisms, a single-celled organism that's been around for half a million years. But we get 70. (laughs) Um, A tree can get a thousand. Um, And so it seems that we're getting less good at survival. As A.N. Whitehead, the philosopher, pointed out, the secret of survival is not to be alive. A rock survives for for millennia, uh, for, 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 for perhaps millions of years. Life is a game which is not about survival. It's about developing something very special, which is a responsiveness. No, I I love the whole of nature and its creatures, and of course they are our kin, and we need to treat them as such, but there is, Sorry, there is something special about humans. and It's fashionable now to decry humans. But again, it's not a, it doesn't have to be one or the other. In order to exalt the beauty and the complexity of nature, we don't have to damn human beings. They can do things wrong, but their capacity to do things wrong is the other side of their capacity to do something utterly incredible, which is to respond to the beautiful, the good, the true, and the holy. And these are the things that make life worth living. And so I believe that we have evolved in order to respond to those values, to see a purpose that draws us on through our lives and I believe beyond our lives because I think that consciousness is everything and that matter is a phase of consciousness but that would take me too long. If somebody wants to ask me about that, they can. Uh, Yes, that's a whole other... I mean, those are the two topics that
1: even amongst all the other unwise things that you think, (laughs) I'm going to do this even if it does my end career. There's a whole list of them. But at the top of the list, you then say, you deal with consciousness saying, I think consciousness is prior to matter. And it's a fascinating argument. Really, really fascinating.
2: Well, maybe thank you, but I mean, I'm also stupid enough... Um, stupider than that. Yes, I know. Because I get to the end of the book and and dare to talk about the sacred. I can't tell you how many philosophers said to me, this is a fascinating book. It's actually brilliant. But don't do that. Nobody will take you seriously. Where have I heard that before? But this is the keystone of everything. And I realize this now as I approach death. But it doesn't matter whether we can clean the seas and we can stop people felling forests. Well, it does. Of course it matters. and We must do it. But it would not matter unless we change something in here. Unless we change the way we think of ourselves in relation to the world. Unless we think about what the value of human life really is. We might as well not bother because we might as well cancel the whole damn thing and go home now because we just carry on being the same limited, stupid, selfish, entitled, miserable beings that we now seem to have made ourselves, having consumed more than anything in, in history and destroyed more than anything in history. So we need to get back to what a human is capable of. And if this world survives, and I believe and hope it will, it will do so in a very much wiser register, than it does now. We are probably the least wise people that have ever lived.
1: And on that note, <laughs> are there any people out there who feel unwise enough <laughs> to ask a question? Uh, there's. Uh, Fellow there, underneath the very bright light. I think you will agree that we live in a time that is
3: dominated by left-hand brain thinking,
1: where the emissary is in charge. The emissary is closer to power and power plays. The emissary doesn't stop at
3: uh, implementing
1: totalitarian or tyrannical measures to get his way. How can the left be matched by poetry holistic, complex thinking in a meaningful way? Mm. Or do we have to see the left brain,
3: if we simplify the reasoning, go its full turn to destruction of the things that we treasure, the societies mm. that we treasure, before the right brain, which I think most people in this hall would, mm. would aspire to, mm. can
1: sort of come to the fore again?
2: Thank you. Well, there are stories in every culture I know which have the structure of the story of the master and his emissary, that there is uh, an overseer, a lord, a spiritual leader, perhaps an emperor, who sees things, and there is a, an upstart who is, um, you know, who is greedy and resentful of the power of the master. And these stories don't offer us um, usually an obvious happy ending, but what they do is they alert us to something we might not otherwise have seen. Now, I'm a psychiatrist, and I know that it's just useless telling people what to do. The first thing you need to do is get them to see what's happening and why, what it is they're doing that doesn't work. And I do do that, and people respond to that, and I think that what we've got to try and do is push back against the kind of policies that tell us that the only kind of useful Well, useful education is technical education, but it is not. On its own, it's dangerous. Unless we understand a fuller picture of what a human life is and what we're building a society for, then having just technical knowledge is a danger. And until about the 60s and 70s, nobody could go into science or technology without having had some sort of grounding in what uh, not coincidentally called the humanities and we really need to recover our humanity and the humanities I would say but I want to say something sorry I know there are lots of other questions but I think this is something worth saying it may seem very um, gloomy and we all are pessimistic and that people feel I'm so small what can I do well uh, you don't have to wait for years and you don't have to wait for other people you can start with yourself because I believe we Remember, I believe we create part of the world. So, the way in which we respond to the world changes the world and changes us. So, we have it in our power to actually bring things into being, to work for good rather than to work for destruction. And so, in doing that, we are doing something important. But people may say, but, you know, I'm just me. I'm so small and the world is so big and then it's just a dot in the cosmos. But this is the left hemisphere speaking about size as though somehow this is a measure of importance. But actually it's not. And when we experience anything really important, we say, "It's my love is as, as great as the skies. It is as deep as the ocean. And who's to say it isn't? You know, we need to think about the real big experiences. They're unfathomably important, and they're contagious. So that if you get, it's considered, about 3% of the population to begin to espouse a certain way of looking at things, it will have... Momentum to carry across society and lots of bad people are filled with, a, you know, Yeats famously said in 1916, you know, the, the best lack all conviction while the worst are filled with a passionate intensity. Well, I think a lot of the best people in this room, so go out and have, your, have conviction that you can do good and you will achieve it and that is good for you as well as being good for the world.
1: There's a hand back
3: there, and then there's another hand over there.
1: Um, yeah.
3: Thank you very much, um, Ian. You're you're going to be able to relax for a minute. I'm going to do something unusual. I'm going to ask David a question. And David, I'm sorry for doing this. It's maybe unfair, but you you do you have worked for the BBC before. <laughs> now, I I have been following Ian for many years, and I am I am getting quite troubled that the BBC. Uh, a great admirer of Steven Pinker, yeah. a very strong left-brain thinker. If you've ever seen one, yeah, yeah. when, when is the BBC going to put something together similar to the Ascent of Man, Jacob Bronowski, uh, and do something about this fellow and get the thing more broadcast? Sorry, David, it's 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 not it's not fair on you, but you get my drift. I, I, I do. This is a I, profound philosophy which would be extremely important for young people. How many young people are there here? None. Very no, no, well there's, there's yeah, these are.
2: <laughs> well, of course. Give that gentleman a star, <laughs> but, that was but, very but good.
3: You get my drift.
2: My, my we're drift. all here, we're all young at heart. Yeah. Okay. Yes.
1: But, I, I, I'll answer your question quickly, because I, I want Ian to get back talking. Uh, the answer is they won't, because the BBC is now in the hands of the left hemisphere. I know this, I was at the BBC for many years. Mm-hmm. I've had this argument, I spent years trying to get the BBC and Channel 4 to make a series of Ian's book, well, since... I mean, I I did put Ian on Channel 4 um, and they were horrified and said don't do that again. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, that won't happen, I'm afraid, Um, uh, the the, the era of the Ascension. Not yet. I think think we will make a film, but it's going to have to be funded in another way.
3: Forgive the quick preface, but speaking of Yeats and of your idea of the master and his emissary, so what you're saying is, turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Now, my question. um, Am I right in thinking that the left brain is doing just the procedural stuff, and it can't it can't see beyond the axioms of the procedure itself and the right brain is what actually fills in the components of that procedure.
2: Yes, one way of thinking about it is and I resist the idea that the brain is like a computer because it isn't but an analogy that helps understand the relationship is that you understand a problem you want some but to do a lot of hard work very fast on some figures. You stick it into a computer, it does it, it spews it out. It doesn't know what it spewed out, but you have to pick it up and take it back into what you were studying and make sense of it. This is really like the way in which the right and left hemisphere work. The left hemisphere is the emissary, it's the functionary, it's the bureaucrat that number crunches. He knows very well how to do that, better than the right hemisphere. The right hemisphere deliberately doesn't engage in that, so that it can see the bigger picture. So that's the relationship, I think.
3: Hi. Attention is a moral act, and I found this perspective of relationships are prior to the latter very fruitful and resonates a lot of truth in philosophy and science. I wonder if you could comment more on what are the implications of this perspective in a more interpersonal, or psychological, or even spiritual way, and uh, ethics. I suppose what's uh, you, you use the word moral. Yeah. So, how much the moral awareness or practice may realize this truth and yeah. that of love. I suppose.
2: Thank you. Yeah. Starting from the end of that, I think an important way of thinking about morality is that it's not just about consequences in a utilitarian way. That's the left hemisphere's idea. And of course that makes us judge uh, somebody who tried to kill a lot of people that succeeded in killing nobody um, m- much better morally than somebody who completely accidentally was the cause of death of some other people. That's just crazy. It's also not just having rules like a deontological argument. It's about a relationship. It's about how we, in our minds, dispose ourselves towards the other that is the subject of our actions. And everything that we do, our relationships, are what we build our life out of. And we all are what we are because of our relationships. So, I mean, it's just very brief, but there's just a few... Reflections of mind that if we don't understand the centre place of relationships and we don't understand life.
0: Hi, just here. Thank, thanks for so many um interesting ideas. Uh just want to know your thoughts on why why is this the case that so many civilizations and societies drift towards the left. And and, yeah. and what can we learn from those that have resisted that drift?
2: Well, we may not be able to avoid it, actually, because it's it's a sort of rule. (laughs) Um, If you look back over history, and not just... I only dealt with Western history because I feel more confident talking about that than Oriental history, but nonetheless, um, it seems that there have been... There is a sort of principle that as a civilization flourishes, it overreaches itself. And once it overreaches itself, all the stuff that comes out of close relationships disappears. And everything has to be done by procedures that can be, as we say, rolled out um, over the bureaucracy of a nation and its empire. And so we begin to lose that individual, unique, responsive way of relating and replace it by what's really strangling every kind of vestige of life left to us now in the West. Bureaucracy and AI, and they're both expressions of the left hemisphere on steroids. This is just the way to to negate life, and and that's what's happening. So, unless you can stop a civilization from growing and stop it from having aspirations, you probably won't be able to stop this cycle repeating itself. There's a very good book I sometimes mention, very short, unlike mine, only 80 pages. Um, by uh, Patrick Offels called, O-P-H-U-L-S that is, called um, Immoderate Greatness, which is a quotation from Gibbon. And he gives six chapters, they're absolutely brilliant, they're lucid, compelling, about why an empire always fails. And, and it doesn't have to be called an empire. I mean, America doesn't call itself an empire, but the empire of commercialism that is rolled out across the world is one.
0: I currently work for the NHS for SLAM, and I'm doing some research into the lived experience of care coordinators who work for CAMHS and child and adolescent mental health teams, and they've described their jobs becoming very mechanical, that they justify their role of actually engaging with teenagers based on figures, but that's how tenders get money, is through justifying sort of mental health work, psychological work through figures and all of that. And I just wonder, do you have advice for how to push against that when it seems very systemic and that's
2: how you justify funding, when it's actually taking people away from that? I heard the word teenagers, but not <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: the, the gentleman works in mental health with yes. teenagers and is saying that he and other, other people are being pushed into justifying their work in the sort of tick box way, I see. Yes, yes. rather than properly engaging with people. And he's saying, how, how does one push back against that, that tendency?
2: well why not push back against it why not when your managers say this is what we've got to do say but why is that really a good way of assessing anything I mean we need to start saying these things there are a lot of things that are taken for granted and we all know they're complete nonsense (laughs) and nobody says it because they don't want to be pushed out of line so I'm afraid there is no substitute for a degree of at least local courage you know being that difficult person who says this is not the best way to work these things out. Also, you know, there are people who write about this, and I've written about it a bit, but you know, generally, <laughs> that, that, these are not the ways to evaluate things. I mean, particularly, for example, works of art. There should be a criteria that, again, can be assessed and measured. And, but this is, anybody who understands a work of art, who's ever been moved by a great work of art, knows that it's a fool's game to try and work out what the score is. Before
1: we go, can I just add one thing? We were, the gentleman was saying how do we fight back and we're very small. It just occurred to me that the COVID virus is extremely small and not that good at transmitting to people. It, 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 no. it, it, it was about, what, 3 4%, it was quite low. But we've seen how quickly it spread. You probably only need to have four conversations in a week oh. and the country will be overrun. <laughs>
2: yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, there's something to go with. Four conversations a week, spread the word.
0: (laughs) This episode starred Ian McGilchrist and was presented by David Malone. It was produced by Nicole Wong and our editor is John Daugherty. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.